Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Jack, good to see you. Good to see you as well, Matt. It's been it's been a, it's been a while. It's been a minute, but yeah. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, trying to make sense of of what happened on election day, and what that means for the liberty movement. But we were just talking about something far more important than the future of the nation. Yes, and that's heavy metal. Absolutely. Um, and I I've just I just went to an Iron Maiden concert concert which was fantastic. My right <laughs> my right ear is finally recovered. Well, I hope you can hear me today. And yeah. yes, they are very loud. So yeah, just shout it because I'm an old man anyway. So just shout <laughs> at me. But what's your what's your favorite uh, metal band? Uh, if we're talking about just like the the people who are responsible for it all, I'd be somewhere between Maiden, Judas Priest, and if you want to go. F- you know, to the original Black Sabbath. Yeah. But I'm a Judas Priest guy. Yeah. Probably. I love Iron Maiden. I've seen them multiple times. I've seen Judas Priest twice, but that's probably my favorite favorite. Yeah. If you asked me when I was in eighth grade, I would have said Metallica, and I also still love Metallica, but as an adult now, Judas Priest. I could never get into Metallica. And okay. I, I tried it, and I wanted to, but it, it just was never my thing. And then they did all that that bullshit going after Napster, and it just turned me off completely. Right, yes. Lars Ulrich was never more less cool to me than when the Napster stuff was going on. Yeah, that son of a bitch. <laughs> but, yeah, we um, it's sort of, I, I don't even know what to call it. I guess it's heavy metal, but there's so many subgenres today. I'm basically a Black Sabbath guy, and right. things, there's a, there's a semi-modern band called Sleep that I really love, and they, sure. they were very much inspired by... By, by Sabbath. What would you call Sleep Logan? Is that what's the category? Uh, kind of drone metal. Drone drone metal. metal, doom metal, and I don't know what all that stuff is. So like they're drone metal. Like Nancy Pelosi is the singer for this band. Yeah. Is, is that is that what this is? Um, well, they're they're sober. So. Oh, okay. Well, so maybe not, it's a different. Maybe genre. not. <laughs> um. So so what have you been up to these days? Oh, I've been very busy. Um, of my 10,000 jobs I have, I'm uh, working for Liberty Tree, which is a product um, inspired and put out by Senator Rand Paul. I was a co-founder of Base Politics with my good friends Brad Palumbo and Hannah Cox, and we're doing well there. We launched in January, going like gangbusters and a couple other things. But, uh, you know, I've been out there running my mouth. If anybody listens or cares, uh, that might be a different story, but that's what I've been doing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, both Brad and Hannah have, are fairly regulars on the show. Yeah. As is uh, Senator Paul as well. And, and he had a pretty good day on Election Day. He certainly did. I didn't. I didn't follow his race all that closely because I never thought that there was a serious threat against him. Sure. And, and maybe that's the story that the Democrats couldn't really see a serious opponent. Now, and Charles Booker, who was his Democratic challenger, uh, was especially bad. Not just because of his performance when the midterm results came in, but he was another person that would like use the neighbor assaulting Senator Paul as an ad campaign and talk about it and cheer it and the hell with that. Literally, yeah. literally in ads. Yeah. He wow. Would talk about it. You know, Bette Midler, like I, you know, I, I like Rand Paul's neighbor, Rob Reiner wanting to buy him a beer and all that kind of stuff. Similar stuff in his ads. I've been, I've been so fascinated by, by the Democrats narrative on this particular subject because, you know, a big part of their argument was that, uh, Republicans and certainly the the extreme right, that the MAGA right is violent and 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 they're threatening violence to our democracy, but they all tell Rand Paul's neighbor jokes as if that's somehow acceptable. I don't I don't get it, and maybe it's just cognitive dissonance. Maybe they don't care. When you've put it in your brain, whether it's January sixth or Donald Trump himself, that the American right at large are basically terrorists, you'll go to any length to say bad things about them, and I think that's included in that such sort of discussion um you know after gabby giffords was shot in the head by a crazed maniac however many years ago that was could you imagine going on twitter and being like i want to buy a beer for that guy yeah like everybody republicans democrats would be like that is disgusting how dare you but with Rand paul it was fair game he he didn't hate trump in the way that they thought you know everybody should hate trump and so yeah we'll say these sorts of things that's where their minds were whether they'll admit it or not yeah by the way everyone should follow Rand's wife kelly paul 
um, because every time someone tells a Rand Paul's neighbor joke, she takes their head off, and it's it's just a glorious thing to see. As well, she should. Somebody that doesn't know Rand or Kelly Paul should have that attitude. This is his wife. Right. She sat there when he had broken ribs, had trouble breathing, was in extreme pain. Um, she had to witness that and deal with it, and yeah, she should take umbrage anytime somebody says remotely anything like that. Yeah, but to your point, um, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi should take umbrage to that. Absolutely. Nancy Pelosi's daughter had fun with cheering Rand Paul's neighbor. Yeah. And here we are with the thing with Paul Pelosi and the attack and whatnot. So there's something to be said um, along those lines for just the extreme divisiveness and tribalism. And and this this goes back to a Mike Lee theory that I quote quite a bit, that, that the more and more that we centralize power and the more and more that we have this imperial presidency that seems to be allowed to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, um, in, in hopes that maybe the courts will strike it down the excesses, um, that the fight for political power becomes more visceral and more violent. And so I think, I think there's, a, there's a realness to um, claims that, that, you know, the, the more that everything the, the most important election of our lifetime and everything matters and and democracy is dead if we don't win this election i think i think it does stoke the risk of of actual violence i think that's true look um a lot of people and look i, I vote republican often but i'm not you know they suck the democrats suck i'm not that i voted libertarian many times but to the degree that you can paint the other side as some sort of existential threat, that they are terrorists, that you know, basically anybody who votes for Trump is the American version of ISIS, you will commit violence, you will censor their speech, you will have no problem with larger institutions censoring their speech in a way that maybe you wouldn't have prior because you think in a liberal society, I have an opinion, Matt Kibbe, you have an opinion, we might disagree, but we both respect the right to have our opinions. That's not where we are at this point. When the Biden administration can float something like a disinformation governance board and a major poll can show that 67% of Democrats think this is a good idea, that a federal agency should regulate citizen speech, we're in a different place. You talked about violence. People say, or on the Democratic side say, you know, January 6th was something unique. And, uh, you know, we can never do that, but this is how Republicans are. I was embarrassed as hell on January 6th for my country. I thought it was a terrible day. But it wasn't an insurrection by a foreign state trying to take over the government. It was a bunch of yahoos running around acting silly. The idea that the people on the left, let's say that many people were gathered at near the Capitol on the day the Roe decision came down. And a left speaker of some sort said something. You don't think that they could have done the same thing in the same situation they could. And I don't say that gladly. But whether it's right or left, people will go to the lengths of violence, censoring speech, things you wouldn't do in a liberal society because they have it in their head that the other side is so bad at this point that that's the measures we should be able to go to. And I yeah. think it's dangerous. Yeah, it's very, very dangerous. And and we're, we're sort of here representing the, the liberty remnant in the Republican Party um, and in, in America, which I still think is there. Um, the other guy, I mentioned Mike Lee, um, he had a really interesting race because he had this guy, we, we, in my household, we call him Egg McMuffin. And I, <laughs> I realize uh, too kind, e- but... Evan, Evan McMullen, um, a former CIA operative, um, a guy with a real political identity crisis because he he ran as as a constitutional conservative, I believe he characterized <laughs> That's himself. That's what he called it, but we'll talk, call it what it is in a second. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I'm thinking about the first Egg McMuffin. There's there's many iterations of this man. Um, His presidential run. Yeah. Yeah. And and he was he was you know waving the banner of of constitutional conservatism. Um, he was really sort of a neocon in sheep's clothing. And then he became an independent, but he wasn't really an independent because he was working for the Democrats. The Democrats actually um, embraced him as their candidate. And, and that race was very much characterized by the, the GOP establishment in Utah as a toss-up. But I think Mike won by something close. 15 points. 15 points, okay. Close to it. Yeah. Um, so that, that was um, arguably one of the more important races, at least on my list, that I cared about. Not only are you right, 
but let's talk about the symbolism of that race in the current political context. So, Evan McMullen, who people disparagingly and rightly call Evan McMuffin, um, was the pick, was it the 2016 cycle, presidential cycle, of Bill Crystal. If those of you who don't know who Bill Crystal is, he was the founder of Weekly Standard, a major neocon magazine. They call it, uh, what, the uh, Air Force One reading during the Bush era. Um, he was the pick, Evan McMullen was the pick of Bill Crystal to run for president when Trump was running. He is a neoconservative. He believes the Iraq war was absolutely wonderful, would stay in Afghanistan still to this day. Torture's not really torture if you call it waterboarding, black sites, all that crap from the Bush era that we remember that was terrible that the neoconservatives portrayed as real conservatism and people like Matt Kibbe and I were called liberal Democrats because we didn't go along with this. That's who he is. So, he was picked to run in this race against Mike Lee, a libertarian-leaning constitutional conservative, uh, one of the best senators in Washington. Him and Rand Paul could joust for that position. Why was he picked? Because the neoconservatives, most of whom have gone over to the Democratic Party, David Frum, Bill Kristol, all those idiots, Liz Cheney, practically a Democrat at this point, are all over there and pushing a... Aggressive foreign policy versus... Which is where they came from, by the way. Which so. is where they came from, and pushing still an aggressive foreign policy via a proxy war with Russia, Ukraine. We can get to that later if we want to. But the point is, Evan McMullen was a symbol to those people who used to run the Republican Party during the Bush-Cheney area. They dictated what it meant to be a conservative. Hey, do we still have a chance? Can we get our foot in the door, get rid of the stupid anti-war libertarian Mike Lee, and have a good neocon in there again? And the local media and the national media portrayed it as neck and neck. And I would watch Republican operatives in Utah saying, it's not as close as you think it is. They would all say that. I'm not in Utah. I don't know, but I was just watching. When the race actually happened, Mike Lee whooped that guy's ass by 15 points. He won handily. And why that's symbolic, Mitt Romney, who is also a symbol of that old neocon establishment, I'm not saying he's Bill Crystal, but he's closer to that than he is Mike Lee, would not endorse the sitting senator in his own state. He would not endorse Mike Lee because I think he, at the bottom of his heart, in his gut, hoped Evan McMullen might do something. Yeah. And he didn't. So the symbolism of this is that old neoconservative GOP who just wished in their deepest heart of hearts that they might have some chance in the Republican Party again, this was that chance, and they got their ass kicked, and yep. it was wonderful. Yeah, it was glorious, and I, I, my own view, and again, I wasn't in U- Utah on the ground either, but I, I think Mitt Romney was more than hoping. I think he was actively involved. I think he was cheering for McMuff- McMuffin. In, 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 we can call him by his name, I guess. I, eh. I'm, I'm not against that. There's, there's no rules on this show. <laughs> and, and like Outback. Yeah. <laughs> and the final, uh, the final guy in in the Liberty Caucus that I'll talk about, but you may you may have others you want to mention as well. Uh, Thomas Massey had a very different fight. Um, I don't think it, there's a single person that was worried that he would win his general election, and I don't know how sure. he probably won by twenty plus points. I haven't even bothered to look. More, right? Yeah. Um, but the the interesting story for him was his primary challenge, and this happened um, exactly around the time that he was fighting the lockdown industrial complex and he got sideways with President Trump who wanted to pass with Nancy Pelosi that first trillion dollar um, spending boondoggle that that we're now paying the price for. Um, He proved, I think, that he could take unpopular positions that were pro-liberty and explain them to his constituents and successfully beat off a primary challenge even when a very popular president in his district was 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 trash talking him at the time. That's true. And I'm gonna go back to the point with Mike Lee and Evan McMullen and apply that to the Massey primary challenge and a woman named Liz Cheney talking about the neocons and mm-hmm. what they're up to and how dishonest and unrelenting they are. So to your point, Matt uh, Massey asked for a roll call vote on that first COVID relief. What was it, $2 trillion, whatever the hell it was, more money than we have and printed or borrowed from China, whatever it was. But he just asked for a roll call vote. He was going to vote no. He was clear about that. He thought it would be misused, abused, that the money wouldn't go to the right places, that corporations would have an advantage, and regular people, small businesses wouldn't get the money. It took exactly three weeks for everybody to learn that Massey was right 
and the entire Washington establishment was wrong. That Washington establishment, when Massey asked for that roll call vote, Republican and Democrat, to a man, to a lady, condemned Thomas Massey. Donald Trump said he should be thrown out of the Republican Party. And to my point about the neocons, when he was in that place where Republicans loved Donald Trump, and Massey, how dare you oppose the spending that even President Trump wants? We love Trump, how dare you? Liz Cheney, this is pre-January 6th, endorsed and tried to fundraise for Thomas Massey's primary challenger. Why? She wrote him a check. That's yeah. exactly right. Because Massey was in the doghouse with her party and her president, right. and she was going to put him under the ground. That's what yeah. she was going to do. That's how she is. Yeah. This is pre-January 6th. Different yeah. Liz Cheney, different context. And then it, we found out like that the challenger was some white nationalist or said something bad or whatever, and everybody withdrew. But my point is that's what she was willing to do, even though he was taking the fiscal conservative position, was proven right in less than a month. Those PPP checks went to like major corporations and whatnot, and a lot of small business people and regular citizens were sitting there with their pockets hanging out. Mm -hmm. He was proved exactly right. And that's what she was willing to do. So when I see people, and get off subject here for a little bit, Libertarians especially, because you're supposed to know better, but even Democrats and whatnot, oh, Liz Cheney, she's so heroic. She was on the January 6th committee and called out. B.S. Yeah. If Donald Trump was Dick Cheney, her dad, and had that foreign policy, and Dick Cheney had been outside the Capitol on January 6th and people had stormed it, she would be MAGA, she'd be defending the mob, whatever. It's all about that. Don't think that this woman has some principle or high. The neoconservatives all operate that way. Mm -hmm. They they will, will gut you as soon as they can when you're in a bad place. Uh, two, 2002, 2003, David Frum, unpatriotic conservatives. If you didn't support the Iraq war, if you were Ron Paul or Robert Novak or Dick Armey or any of those people at the time who remotely questioned the war, you're out of the party. That's how the neoconservatives operate. That's what Liz Cheney did to Thomas Massey. That's what they want to do with Evan McMullen and Mike Lee, that whole thing. Don't underestimate these people. We've pushed them to the Democratic Party as far as we can. Don't let your guard down. They are ruthless and the hell with them. And just always remember these things that we're discussing here today about that, that faction. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. How did the, um, so we, we've kind of, um, I, well, I should ask before I go on to the neocons, like I'm, I'm thinking about all the factions that make up the Republican coalition now and there's at least four. There's the Liberty faction, mm -hmm. there's the MAGA faction, there's certainly the neocon faction, and maybe this overlaps completely with what I would just call the machine Republicans who just want power. And, and they'll, it, they'll be whatever you want them to be yeah, as long as you give them power. Whatever being a Republican means. I would add the nationalist conservatives. Yeah. Like that they're a force, they're a thing. Um, I, I guess I would call them MAGA, MAGA, but it's... They overlap with MAGA. MAGAs, they're based to the degree that they have a base to do the things that we want, but I think most just average MAGA Republicans don't know that they exist, even if, you know, I think DeSantis, who I generally like, has been touched by a little bit of that stuff. Some mm -hmm. of the things you see with Greg Abbott and getting into telling private companies what they should do and yeah. what not as libertarians we're against. Um, but they're, they're a force to the degree that they remain a force, uh, will remains to be determined. I think the midterm election, uh, they had a big win with J.D. Vance winning. Uh, so in the Senate now with the Nationalist Conservatives, I would say that their pillars would be J.D. Vance, Tom Cotton, and Josh Hawley for the mm -hmm. Liberty Faction. It would be Rand Paul and Mike Lee. I think some of the, deb the debates that those people are going to have might have a lot to do with shaping the right in the months and years to come. I um, several years ago, I was at a dinner for for the American Conservative, and maybe it was actually it was more than several years ago now, probably for J.D. Vance, um, you know, famous author of Hillbilly, uh, Hill, Elegy. Hillbilly Elegy, yeah. was the speaker, and an American Conservative is is sort of a, a leans non-interventionist. There's a libertarian faction within yeah. there. Um, I don't know where they are today, but uh, John Otley was still alive, and he was very much a libertarian. Yes. And J.D. Vance went off on this just rant against libertarian Republicans and how we were to blame for everything. So he's 
he's not one of us. Um, no. And he's he's one of those guys. If national conservatism is taking supposedly conservative values and using the power of government to implement them across the board, J.D. Vance is that guy. He is that guy. And I like Hillbilly Elegy. I like the book and the movie. Um, I like him. I think his heart's in the right place. Um, his policy prescriptions, which we're going to talk about right now, are way wrong in a lot of areas. Um, I was probably at that same American conservative gala you were at where he spoke. I think it was him and Ross Douthat and a few others, and I like Ross Douthat as well. The National Conservatives' biggest fetish, let's just start with this before we get into what they actually believe, is hating on libertarians. Yeah, That's what they start with. In their mind, Mitt Romney and Bob Dole or whatever iteration of Republican establishment stuff was going on at the time, libertarians were in control, and that's been the problem. Free markets are the problem. Capitalism is the problem. And it's so it's so damn transparent. You watch these people, and you like can't take... If they say something serious after that, you almost can't take it seriously because you can tell they just can't wait to say libertarians are bad, we hate them, they suck, they're not serious, whatever. That's what they do. J.D. Vance does this, all these people do this. So, this is what they believe. The traditional American conservative tradition. Conservatism means different things in different places. If you were in Russia right now, if you're conservative, you might long for the old Soviet Union. That's what you want to conserve. In America, we're a constitutional republic. So what we want to conserve is constitutional government, which means limits on government. Is it always obeyed? Hell no. That's why we have you and me here talking about a lot of the things we're talking about today, but it should be. We have a constitution, it limits government, states have powers, federal government has powers, but it's all limited and it's supposed to be kept in its box, right? We as libertarians, traditional American conservatives, that's what we argued since anybody thought the term conservative should mean anything when Russell Kirk wrote a book in the 1950s. Democrats, liberals, I don't call them that anymore because they're not liberal, don't care about that. They want a Green New Deal. They want whatever their agenda is. And if the Constitution prohibits it or anything else, screw that. We don't care about that. We're, we're going to use state power to get what we want. And as conservatives, libertarians, we're like, no, there's limits. The nationalist conservatives, J.D. Vance, agree with the Democrats. They're like, yeah, we're going to use state power towards right-wing ends. And so what if this power ends up in the hands of Kamala Harris in the future or whoever else? We're going to use it right now, and that's what we're going to do. That's European conservatism. That's European right-wingery. Um, I have been a longtime contributor to the American conservative since almost, the, not the beginning, because that was 2003, but certainly about 2007 or so. Um, I don't write there anymore. I, I'm friends with some of those people, but it's a nationalist conservative publication. Um, I didn't know, so it's it's turned, and maybe that's why I saw that's J.D. What I, Vance That's at what I dinner. see. The, okay. the few times I go and look there anymore. Um, uh, John Utley would be spinning in John his grave. John Utley would be, and John was a great, great man. Yeah. Uh, I would call him a friend. John had this thing, Kelly Vlahos, who's a responsible statecraft, and I always talk about this. When you're in a public setting and John Utley was still with us, he would put his arm on my shoulder and he would talk to whatever person we're talking to be like, you need to you need to check out Jack Hunter. He's a great writer. And I said that to Kelly. Kelly's like, that's what he always did to me, too. Yeah, yeah. So he was a great guy. He's a libertarian. That's how I met Kelly, actually. John really? introduced okay. me. And, and uh, we were um, – and Kelly's been on the show as well. And she's, she's a tremendous uh, thinker, writer, advocate for – what we believe in. Absolutely. And there's a lot of quality writing and thinking at the American Conservative, but it's certainly gone in a nationalist direction. Yeah. Um, and there's a number of publications out there, and they're a faction on the right. That's what we're talking about here today. And, you know, in their minds, Trump has ushered in this opportunity for them. Um, I, I'm not going to say this person's name, but I and a friend of mine of like-minded thinking who often criticized the nationalist conservatives were, la were laughing recently. A lot of them call all the – there's overlap. There's the nationalist conservatives, the integralists who think the Catholic Church is going to take over the White House or something. I don't know. It's pretty silly. And there's the common good conservatives. They're all cousins. They're in the same camp. The biggest common good opportunity in the last two to three years, common good, screw the individual, common good – was to force you to get the vaccine and lock down in the yep. name of the common good, right? Yeah. None of those people who call themselves common good embrace that because they want to be two things, common good and right wing. Right wing is going to take precedent over common good. That wasn't right wing to call for vaccine mandates and lockdowns, but it was common good yeah. as understood at the time. They didn't yeah. They didn't go there. They all, they all suffer from that same 
fatal conceit and you could you you know first of all they don't know enough to reorganize is that the whole point of being a traditional conservative is you believe in robust civil society and you sure. believe in private institutions like churches and families and 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 that kind of thing to to, to hold things together from the bottom up but they they want to they want to hijack that and I, I don't quite get the logic and I I haven't followed the intellectual basis of national conservatism, but to me, it's just another ism. It's another form of authoritarianism that um, thinks that they can beat the corrupting nature of power and thinks that they're smart enough to do it. Agree. What it reminds me of, I'll compare it to two things. When I was a teenager, I was running around with guys who thought we were going to secede. I'm from South Carolina, going to secede from the Union. Right, we're secessionists, and I, I do believe in decentralization. And mm-hmm. If California wants to leave, sure. But when you, I was that young, it was more. I actually want a wall. I'm not. I'm not a big supporter of walls, but I, I wouldn't mind walling <laughs> off California. Me either. And and maybe Canada at this point. I don't know. Right. Me either. But it was less about you know intellectual argument, more about I'm young and this seems cool yeah. and different. Right. And you're around older people who actually believe this, and you get older, you're like, well, what the hell was going on? It reminds me of that. It also reminds me, we started this conversation talking about heavy metal being in high school and, like, who's the most satanic band out there? That's what I'm into. And you don't know. Like, it's just stupid, right? But a lot of the national conservatism things, starting with their just hatred of libertarians, is like, well, the same old, same old limited government free market stuff, screw that. I'm going to be into the big government right-wing stuff. Yeah. And there's very smart people who follow this movement and are part of this movement, but that intelligence has nothing to do with why people are attracted to certain movements, or very little in my opinion. It's that factor, that, mm-hmm. that immature, schoolyard-level, this is sexy, this is hot, this seems fun. I do take, I, I continue to take uh, solace in the fact that that almost everyone seems to attack small L libertarianism as as the problem, and you know we don't have any power. We've never had any power. We don't aspire to power, um, and yet um, it seems to be a target of the ire of all these other factions, not just within the GOP, but certainly on the the, the progressive left. That must mean they're afraid of something. It must mean if we actually got our act together, that we might be a formidable force in, in American culture. Well, the only serious intellectual opposition to what they're arguing with this big government right-wingery or whatnot are the libertarians. I mean, going back to Frank Meyer and, and all that and all that stuff, you know, half century ago. They want to portray the Republican Party as being libertarian in a way that we and a lot of them that used to be libertarian would say is false and, and wrong. They would say, well, Mitt Romney was a free market capitalist you see how that worked out? No, he was a corporatist. Yeah, we—that's not free market. We believe in the free market being free of government and not cooperating with government. Mitt Romney, if you break it down, believes in corporations being in league with government. It's corporatism, right? So they want—they've forgotten all that to the degree that they ever argued that or thought about it and say, "Well, Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell—that was a libertarian Republican Party." No person that is remotely thoughtful or observant would think that but that's what they start with and then they get into all their big government stuff that's exactly what it is you could break it down and, i mean you could you know destroy them in three seconds it's it's easy but that's what they imagine and that's where they start yes speaking of the libertarian remnant uh let's talk about the politics of lockdowns and and i was um and this gets to the that I was certainly someone that predicted a red wave. Um, I thought that lockdowns and non-essential workers and moms whose kids were either not allowed to go to school or were forced to mask in school, um, people that were fired because they they chose for whatever reason not to get vaccinated, um, moms that were filling their grocery carts and discovering that things now cost 30% more than they did. I thought that would be enough to fire a lot of Democrats. And I I realized that, um, and Thomas Massey and I talked about this uh, recently, that, you know, a lot of this stuff started under the Trump administration and a lot of Republicans are very much culpable in this. And there are more bad Republican governors and good ones on this subject. All that said, Democrats were in power, and I thought they were going to get punished. And that didn't happen. And um, 
I'm trying, I was trying to find a silver lining and obvious, the obvious silver lining for those of us that oppose lockdowns is what happened in Florida. And there's a couple other examples of that, but what's your read on, 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 on the, the red wave that didn't happen? I, like you thought that there was going to be a red wave. There was not a red wave. Um, Republicans did well in the sense that there's a chance that the House or Senate might be controlled by them. We don't know until all the votes are counted, whatever that looks like. But Republicans, by and large, were disappointed. Those of us who lean right and expected what you just described. Democrats were elated because I think they expected a red wave and it didn't happen. Yeah. So uh, as a side note, I had predicted that Democrats would be saying the election was stolen and all kind of what Hillary said two or three weeks out beforehand. Um, that didn't happen because all this election stolen, stolen stuff is mainly a coping mechanism. Yeah. Uh, if, you know, if you're Hillary Clinton in 2016, you're saying Trump's an illegitimate president and the election could be stolen with you. That's basically saying there's no way in a rational world where I could lose. It must have been stolen. Trump did the same thing with 2020. Sure. With those claims. So. By the way, this and a, a, you know, it, it's going to sound like I'm defending um, uh, Trump election deniers, but my entire adult life, mm-hmm. the Democrats have said that every election they lost 2000. was illegitimate. Absolutely. This is this is not a new thing. This is a standard operating procedure. It's not remotely new. There are people of a certain age to this day that believe the 2000 election was won uh, by Al, Al Gore. Al Gore is the president. And yeah. they'll believe that for the rest of their lives. 2004, Maxine Waters and other people said John Kerry had the election stolen from him. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Stacey Abrams. I'm skipping a couple of years here, but like that's been happening forever. The difference is how it's perceived. Most journalists, if you look at any polling on this, it was like 96% vote Democrat or something like that. So if the people who are supposed to report about election stolen, whether it's true or not or whatever, agree with the people saying it's stolen, it's going to be reported differently. Hillary Clinton has said for three, four, five, six, I don't know how many years now, that the 2016 election was stolen from her. She used that word, stolen. I'm not making again, this up. Again and again. Again and again. She's called Trump an illegitimate president, and it's covered as, huh. Okay. But when Trump said it, this, even before January 6th, people, oh my God, you're destroying democracy. And I agree with that. It is bad for a democratic republic for people in these positions, high profile, to say that every election is stolen. I totally agree with that. But don't pretend like Trump invented this mm-hmm. two years ago. Yeah. That's not what's happening. As far as the, lo- the lockdowns and the effect it had on the midterms, I thought that would be a major issue. It looked like the democratic turnout, <clears throat> excuse me, a big issue for a lot of them was the Roe decision. We see that. I thought inflation alone would have gave us a red wave, but that's not what happened. So I don't have any like perfect descriptions. I think a blueprint for how you do this from a right-leaning standpoint is Ron DeSantis and what he did in Florida. He he kicked ass. I mean, he had a 20-point spread. More importantly, he attracted independents. He had women voting for him. He had Latinos voting for him in higher numbers than the average Republican. And that's kind of what Trump did in 2016. That's what Barack Obama did from a left perspective in 2008. That's what Ronald Reagan did back in the day. That's what you want for a winning formula. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I agree with Ron DeSantis on most things. And uh, anybody that's not looking at Florida and what happened Tuesday is a blueprint is looking in the wrong direction. If you made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. This gets to my theory, and I want to believe this is true. So this is me sort of imputing my my hopes that that um, ideas matter in politics. And I, even saying that out loud makes me sound naive because I realize <laughs> I realize that a lot of things matter before ideas. But there is a you you and I were intimately involved in different ways in the Tea Party wave of two thousand and ten. Sure. And one stark difference that I think might matter, and this gets to your point about DeSantis, a stark difference is that the Tea Party wave was preceded by a bottom-up grassroots policy map called the Contract 
from America. Ninety-four. And and Mike Lee was the first guy to sign. Not not ninety-four. This is uh, two thousand and ten. Oh yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Con- contract. F- was, what was for America? For the Gingrich, contra- one. Gingrich was contract for America. Okay, right. We wanted this one to be from America, so it was it was a crowdsourced grassroots document. Uh, Mike Lee was the first guy to sign this when no one was taking him seriously, and then all of a sudden he takes out sure. incumbent, incumbent for life, Robert Bennett. But it did create um, a somewhat predictable um, statement that almost every Tea Party Republican ran on so that if you were voting against the establishment, you're voting against the status quo, you're frustrated with uh, Wall Street bailouts and Obamacare and all that stuff, you not only knew that you were voting against that, but you knew what these guys were going to do. Sure. Um, there was no such thing this time. There was sort of a visceral MAGA, um, um, Trump got the election stolen. There was there was a totally feckless Kevin McCarthy. There was a contract, you probably, did you know this? That Kevin McCarthy had this. His attempt of some kind of a Meaningless, right. vapid, 10 campaign slogans that really didn't tell you anything about what Republicans stood for. So. I wonder if one of the problems was that um, you know being not a Democrat wasn't enough. Perhaps so. You started this what you just said talking about the power of ideas or to the degree that people care about ideas. The reason you and I are talking, anybody watching is interested in this stuff, is because we do care about ideas, and we have our ideas, and other people have their ideas, and we debate. We want ours to rise to you know to win. Um, I'm a very optimistic person, and people sometimes ask me why. I have a very low view of humanity <laughs> at large, so I don't expect much. And I don't say that glad. I think, you know, the, the Christian sense, we're all fallen, we're all, something's wrong with us. Pe- people don't think that deeply. And the people love their families, their kids, their spouses, their parents. That's what's important. That's what's important in life, the people you love and who loves you back. But to the degree that they have you know, intellectual thoughts and whatnot, I think to the degree that any of this manifests itself is personification. It's people. Um, if the left hated Ronald Reagan you know, back then, he's, he's a capitalist and hates the poor, and we were like, he's a capitalist and people are going to make money and it's gonna, we're going to thrive. But it was him first, mm-hmm. and the capitalism free market second. Mm-hmm. The Tea Party was unique to me in that there wasn't one titular head. I think you might remember there was a Politico poll, I think, in 2009 or 2010. They, they interviewed or surveyed Tea Partiers. Who do you think the leader of the Tea Party is? And about 50% said Ron Paul, and about 50% said Sarah Palin. Yeah. So those were figures. Right. But that's how people express, I love Sarah Palin, I love Ron Paul, I love Rand Paul, I love Ronald Reagan, I love Donald Trump, I love Bernie Sanders. That's how most people express where they're at politically. I think that's true from 100 years from now, it was true 100 years in the past. To the degree that you can have a figure that represents things we like, you're going to get ahead, and to the degree that you don't, and they get ahead, we're not going to like it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the key to most of this stuff. Do I think people have opinions on different policies and subjects? Of course they do. But it's that emotional gut identification with a figure that drives them more than anything. Um, a Republican candidate friend of mine was running in Florida, and this person was not particularly like super pro-Trump or super anti-Trump, just kind of neutral on the subject. And this person didn't win, but this person relayed to me, they would go door knocking, and the first person would, the first thing any person would say was like, do you like Trump? Not, are you going to cut taxes? Are you, right. Do you like Trump? Right. And this person would say whatever they would say, but like, I just think that's where a lot of this is. And I think a lot of this in this field, you and I, we give people too much credit in thinking about ideas. I'll probably ruin my whole career saying this right now on this thing, but. That's, no, I, that's how I really feel. I think that's where we're thinking. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I think you're, by the way, you're 100% right. And I don't think they're, they're completely separate um, because no. I, then as I'll use this, this much abused term, but you, you mentioned Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul and, and, and I, I would put Donald Trump in this category. They're, they're, they're different in the sense that people believed them. Yes. And they credibly. Integrity. And it's, it, and it's weird to, to lump 
Donald Trump into this. I think he's a slightly different story because they liked him because that that guy will say anything. Like, and it somehow that was authentic mm-hmm. because people were tired of just hearing um, canned um, speeches being vomited from robot politicians who all say the same thing and they clearly don't even know what they're saying and they don't believe it. Um, so there's there is that authenticity thing, which in both the case of Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders is linked to a set of ideas and a set of values and a philosophy. Yes. So you get there. Yeah. Um, you know, the the funny thing is the oldest guy running in a you know Republican primary in 2008 and 2012, who's not even a great orator, just gets up there and says what he thinks. And people know that he voted no more than anybody else in Congress talking about Ron Paul. Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders, 2016, 2020, who's not a great speaker or anything. He's the oldest guy in the race, kind of looks like a wacky professor is the most popular guy with hardcore progressives and young people. It's what you just said, Matt, that people th- see they have integrity. Now, what, what what Ron Paul produced was so many people who never even thought about libertarian ideas are now immersed in it because of him, but it started with the figure. Mm-hmm. We would not be having a serious discussion in the last couple of years about socialism in the United States and even using the word if not for Bernie Sanders' popularity initially. Right. right. Um, so, yeah, that's what it starts with. But you're right. It is... And I would never vote for Bernie Sanders. I'm not a socialist, but I understand the appeal. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I understand the appeal of Ron Paul. I'm a Ron Paul fan and work for Ron Paul. People see it as these people have integrity. They're not your run-of-the-mill politician. They stand for something, and we're for that, and we like that. So let's talk about um, guys that were not that at all. And this this gets to the question of how, how Trump endorsements performed in this election. But I, I think it's um, either tragic or comical that John Fetterman will be going to the U.S. <laughs> Senate. Um, and, and, you know, not, not to be mean, but it, there, there was a time when um, your ability to perform your duties as, as a public official mattered. Right. And I, I think it's reasonable to say he's not going to be able to do what he's been hired to do. We're uh, way past that. Yeah. People don't care. He was the Democrat in that race. Democrats turned out how Democrats turned out, and it could have been a broomstick. Yeah, and that's the way that we're going to vote. But um, so, do you think that it was just the um, mechanics of of Democrats in Pennsylvania getting getting the mail out ballot game going early and often, or do you think that Dr. Oz was just a a clown of a candidate himself? I think it's probably both of those things. I think it's probably a a, a combination. Um, you know, and I wouldn't make fun of. Dr. Oz anymore to make fun of Fetterman. They're kind of on an even keel, right, in, yeah. in that area. I think it's a combination of those things. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think the Roe decision, I'm absolutely pro-life, but we're just talking politics here. I think the Roe decision inspired a lot of Democrats, um, which is not surprising <coughs> when you think about it. That was jarring for you know a lot of people on the pro-choice side, Democrats. Um, yeah, I think there are multiple factors, what you just described and that. But as far as like just electing people who functionally can do their duty, I think that it, I think some people think about that, but I don't think it's in the top five for a lot of people who would vote for these candidates. Yeah. The, well, I guess the president would be case in point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The last two, depending on where you want to go and where your partisan leanings are. But I, but I think um, I'm going to pick on Trump just a little bit. Um, he probably, let's assume, so we don't know what's going to happen in the Senate, but we know that his preferred candidate in New Hampshire uh-huh. um, um, really performed poorly, and that, that was a seat that was very much viewed as a as a Republican um, win. Um, same with Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz was pro-lockdown. He was pro-mask mandate. Um, I don't even know if he would is he traditionally Republican? I don't know that much about him, but he's kind of a nothing burger. Nothing burger. He just moved to Pennsylvania to yeah. run for that. Carpetbagger from New Jersey. Right, right. That's that's not cool. Well, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh. That's not cool. Sure, yeah. sure. Ron Paul was born in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, As all great people. My <laughs> wife was born in Pittsburgh. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty cool. Go Steelers. Um, <laughs> wow, that's a bad thing to say right now. It's, <laughs> I think... This midterm election, like we said, we both agreed there was going to be a red wave that didn't come about. Fealty to Trump was considered, you know, that's you got that you're going to get you're going to win, and Republican voters are going to show up. A lot of those candidates lost. Um, Ron DeSantis was the biggest winner on Tuesday. He won by twenty point plus points. 
in Florida, which I said earlier, which is a purple state. He won people outside of the Republican sphere, women, Latinos, independents, whatnot. That's the blueprint for success, and he did that as a strong conservative. He's not out there being some middle-of-the-road, mealy-mouthed, whatever. He's, he has a conservative agenda, hopefully a, a libertarian conservative agenda, some of which is now, and hopefully more so. But the idea that just, I'm loyal to Trump, I love Trump, MAGA, 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 that's what's going to make you win forever from here to when we're dead— that was going to break at some point. Mm-hmm. I think 2022 might have been that. And I'm so look, I, there's many things I admire about Trump, and people were looking for s- some way to stick it to the establishment 2016, including me. I wanted that to be Rand Paul ended up being Donald Trump. But I admire that impulse. Like, you know, I like his America first foreign policy. I'm not a Trump hater. I hate the Lincoln Project. Like, don't try to put me in that category. But in the midterms, I think Ron DeSantis kind of showed hey, I can be appealing, I'm conservative, um, and just saying you worship Trump or, or with in league with Trump might have cut it in the past, but it's not going to cut it in the future and didn't cut it on Tuesday. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's we, we don't know yet because Arizona is apparently going to take six months to count the last <laughs> 500,000 ballots. Banana Republic? Like what? Yeah, and, it, it, and by the way, like I... Even if I, I believe that all elections are slightly crooked, um, I think stealing happens when stealing can happen. But you have to believe that dragging these things out like this just feeds um, people's um, skepticism that that it's not just a just a total uh, fixed rigged game. Absolutely. And 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 I don't know if Arizona gets fixed, but uh, what a what a clown show. It fe- look, discrepancies happen in any election, anywhere, anytime in the history of mankind. That just happens. They're not infallible. But the idea that Russia, you know, put some bots on the Internet in 2016 and that turned the whole election to Trump is something only somebody emotionally scarred by Trump's victory, a Democrat, could believe in 2016 and still believes to this day. Trump in 2020, you know, he'll pick out this and that, but like, they're emotionally scarred too. Yeah, that's as I said earlier. It's a coping mechanism. You, but that is that said, you are correct. In New Hampshire, if it's going to take them half a year or whatever the hell it is to figure out who won the election, that's not very reassuring to people who also Arizona. already believe Arizona. or Arizona, excuse yeah. me, versions of what I just described. Right. That's going to feed into that. Yeah. And why can't they figure it out? I don't. Am I a crazy person? I don't remember as a kid. I was kind of interested in politics and watch on TV. Everybody kind of knew everything the the night of or yeah. the next day. Yeah. Did this happen then? Yeah. I don't recall that. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. I, I don't remember it happening, and um, I mean, it does. You know, I was, I was looking at the map uh, before we started, and there's a lot of extremely close races, which is why we still don't know. Which is understandable. Um, I mean, it it now looks like the Republicans control the House, but we don't know that. Um, I think it's it's the path for the Republicans to control the Senate because of those three races I mentioned: Arizona. Pennsylvania and New Hampshire, all Trump endorsements. Right. Um, I think it's more difficult to see how Republicans get that. Maybe it comes down to the runoff in Arizona. It um, might. And uh, by the way, do you have an opinion on libertarian candidates as spoilers? I no. Um, well, I do have an opinion. If you're a libertarian LP candidate running against Thomas Massey or Rand Paul, don't even talk to me. Like, go away. That's just silly. They do it, but I don't agree with it. In the Georgia race, Chase Oliver, I think I've met him once or twice. He's a cool guy. Herschel Walker, I hope I hope he wins just because I want Republicans to, you know, have control of the Senate. But he's not particularly libertarian or anything like that. And, you know, Warnock is useless. No, there should be a libertarian in those races, and they should be espousing the things that you and I believe in and saying this is the way it should be. And if the major parties won't pay attention, well, hey, pay attention to me. I only got 2%, but guess what you guys are now? 
And that's the power that, that the LP has. To me, as somebody who's voted for the LP much in the past, it's a vote of conscience, first and foremost. Um, I haven't voted for a major presidential candidate since Bob Dole in 96 when I was 18 and Pat Buchanan told me to. That's <laughs> Ever since it's been and you've been regret- And you've been regretting it ever since. Yes, yeah. Yes. I wish I hadn't done that, but I was young and I was a Buchanan guy. We all have I, skeletons. In our right. Party, yeah. <laughs> but that said, I've always voted for LP or some third-party candidate of some sort as a vote of conscience, <clears throat> and proudly so, no regrets. Um, but in situations like this, and you know, people on the Democrat or Republican side are like, oh, that damn third-party. No, that's what that party's for. If you would have listened to me, Herschel Walker, and agreed with some of the things, maybe I wouldn't have run. You see what I'm saying? That's the power they have, and I think it's it's useful. It's mm-hmm. instructive. Yeah. Um, another theory that I'm just starting to develop, um, going going back to the the, the Tea Party analogy, um, I'm old enough to remember when the media and the everybody that is considered smart in this world were celebrating the Obama campaign of 2008 for, um, in a very clever and crafty way, using Facebook. Manipulating mm-hmm. Facebook, driving get out the vote through social media, um, and I, I very much believe, and I've written about this, that you know the Tea Party would not have existed without a very free and open, albeit primitive, uh, set of social media tools. They, they self-organized. Um, there, there was no orchestration from the top down, but there was also no, no censorship and no manipulation. These were relatively open platforms. Um, we're now learning, and you just wrote a piece about this on base politics. We're now learning the extent to which the Biden administration and the Department of Homeland Security, which sounds just so insanely Orwellian, is is deciding uh, sometimes through third parties which political speech is allowable coming up to this election. Um, what what's going on? Well, what's going on is absolutely dangerous and terrifying, depending on your perspective. Your perspective should be, if you live in the United States, that I believe in the First Amendment and free speech and that that's good for civil discourse and civil discourse is good for democracy. We hear a lot from the Democratic side about threats to democracy, and they point to a bunch of yahoos running around on January 6th, and they're not wrong to be concerned about it. But they should also be concerned about the President of the United States and his administration floating something called the Disinformation Governance Board, the job of which is a federal agency would regulate our speech. What you're talking about is in line with that, that's part of the story. Uh, I think Lee Fang of The Intercept, the reporter, had a blockbuster story that came out on Halloween, October 31st. We kind of knew that the FBI and the intelligence community was sort of directing Twitter and Facebook and these social media platforms when it came to COVID, the Hunter Biden laptop story. We were told that they were sort of telling them this is, this is the way it is. The Hunter Biden laptop story is disinformation. Anything that the CDC doesn't agree with is wrong. And maybe you should censor that, but we're the government. We can't really do that because the First Amendment and whatnot. The story from Lee Fang from The Intercept from two weeks ago unveils that the government has been working intimately with these social media platforms, including portals, where basically somebody at the FBI could be like, this guy said this on Twitter, I don't like it, and could remove it. Facebook or Twitter actually do it, but it's the government official doing it effectively. Mm -hmm. That is a direct violation of the First Amendment. That is a threat to democracy unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime, maybe going back to the Red Scare. I would argue this might be worse than the Red Scare as far as not being able to talk, express ideas. Hey, Matt, I, I believe this. Oh, Jack, I believe this. Not being able to do that, just basic civil discourse and the government preventing it. That is a direct violation of the first part of the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment. That's scary as hell. Do you see that on talk, talked about on MSNBC or Meet the Press this weekend or Washington Post, New York Times? ACLU. ACLU, yeah, exactly. No, they're still talking about January 6th or whatever. That's scary. And people wonder why, oh, why do people vote for Trump and do all that? Well, that's that's the reality they live in. They see something like that and they're like, why, why isn't this a big deal? Yeah. And, oh, well, Trump talked about it, Ron DeSantis talked about it, or some other, you know, sort of figure that challenges the establishment, and they go with that. And they should. Yeah. I can't blame them. It's, that's scary as hell. I, this is not hyperbole here. Like, right. that's weird that that's not, like, the biggest story out there. 
So, so I, I, I used to be, um, and I've written about this as well, uh, quite romantic about the power of technology. You know, forget, forget politics and political outcomes. It's not really about that, but like democratizing information and knowledge and, and decentralizing everything so that, that people had an ability to figure things out sure. without university professors or presidents or, or news anchors, any, any, any sort of those establishment top-down institutions that used to tell you what to think. So I was very romantic about that. Um, I think I still am because this very scary story that you're telling tells me that they, they keep, it's kind of like whack-a-mole, they keep trying to stop people from being free and thinking for themselves. And, and this is the latest iteration where they, they clamp down on social media they're not going to allow those platforms. By the way, they're strangling the platforms in the process of this. The business model, I think, is not sustainable if it becomes this curated combination of this is what the government's allowing you to see, and oh, by the way, this is what corporate um, advertisers will allow you to see, and it, it becomes kind of a wasteland at some point. Um, along comes Elon Musk and says, you know what, um, Twitter's a wasteland, it's a combination, I'm putting words in his mouth now, but I think this is part of his argument that it's you know between corporate advertisers and, and government censorship and political correctness and speech police, uh, Twitter's no fun anymore. Uh, it comes along and buys it. And then a planted question from um, um, Legacy Media, a Bloomberg reporter, asks President Biden, are you gonna investigate this guy? Um, and Biden pretends to be surprised by the question and laughs and said, yeah, maybe I will. Do that, you, that's that's pretty evil, too. It's super evil. Do you remember that time that the federal government investigated George Soros? I don't either. Yeah. Yeah. So in this environment, what we, what we were just discussing about just the government actually censoring speech through social media platforms, which should be the biggest story in the world right now. This administration, the Biden administration, as you noted, was asked yesterday, a spokesman said it, I think it's press secretary and also the president, you know, are we going to investigate Elon Musk for allowing free speech on Twitter? That's not how the question was posed, but that's basically what they were asking. And Biden's answer was it's worth looking into. It wasn't a no. Yeah. The, the press team, it wasn't a no. What? What are we talking about? So the argument before was from people who liked. By the way, if I'm not mistaken, I think someone from Homeland Security gave a more a strong response because then he was asked. Right. I think it was Homeland Security. I'm I not, th- not I th- exactly sure. I think that's right. I'm not exactly sure either, but that makes sense because that's one of the agencies doing the censoring. That's, that's who's in charge. Right, invested in Of this. your right to speak. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But think about this. The argument before when Twitter was censoring all over the place, the Hunter Biden story, which former Twitter head Jack Dorsey has said was a total mistake. He called it censorship. That story has since been verified by the New York Times and Washington Post. Twitter, the argument was, well, it's a private company. As libertarians, we agree with that. They can do what they want. They can do whatever they want. The nationalist conservatives wanted the gut section 230. I disagree with that. I think that's free speech for the Internet. But guess what? There's another private entity called Elon Musk. This guy comes in, he's a gazillionaire, and he wants to be philanthropic and say, I'm buying this thing and I'm going to allow free speech in the way the ACLU meant it in 1978. Let's go. Celebrities leave Twitter, they're upset, and the Biden administration hence teases that they might investigate them for this. After all the other affronts to free speech that they've committed, that's where we are. Mm-hmm. That's... I mean, you have to be a loyal Democrat to think, boy, this is this is the way it should be. It's great. And they do. Yeah. They all hate Elon Musk. They don't flinch at the Biden administration say to investigate. And they agree with Whoopi Goldberg that I'm going to leave Twitter because free speech might happen. I assume there's a new emoji they're going to put in their bios that has like Elon's face with a <laughs> with a red slash through it. Very well might. Yeah. It's it's insane. You know, to be a progressive in the United States in the last half century was to agree with the ACLU, to agree with due process, free speech. In the Bush era, the, you know, those types of Republicans would suppress, would want to suppress the speech of Muslims, let's burn Korans, uh, get rid of due process for these people, and libertarians like us would say, no, that's bad. Democrats at large would say that's bad. And now we are where they're like, well, MAGA Republicans are such a threat. These Trump people, screw their free speech, 
screw their due process, screw their basic civil liberties. And they won't articulate it the way I am right now, but that's what they're saying. Talk to your average Democratic friend. I have more Democratic friends than Republican friends, believe it or not, because I've been banging on a guitar for more of my life than doing politics. And most of those people are left-leaning. But talk to them and say, hey, man, or hey, hey lady, do, do you believe in free speech? Like, yeah, I believe in free speech. What about spreading misinformation? Oh, no, we can't do that. How, how about hate speech? Oh, no, we, we got to censor that. Well, who, who decides what's misinformation? Who decides what hate speech? And if you tell the same people who just three nanoseconds ago told you they believe in free speech, well, Biden has a plan for this. It's to say, they'll be like, oh, that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. And that's where they are. The biggest change happens, the biggest revolutions happen when nobody notices. Wow, that's depressing. It's true. Yeah. If these are the same people who 20 years ago, if I was like, well, I don't want these you know, Islamic extremists, this, these Arab Americans talking freely in the U.S., 9-11 just happened. Let's shut them down. And Republicans would be like, hell yeah, let's do that. Progressives would be like, no, we got the First Amendment. You can't do that. Yep. Right now, shut down the MAGA. Rep hell yeah, do that. Let Biden do it. Yeah. The biggest change happens when nobody notices. So where where is the, the future voice for liberty going to come from? Well, it'll take leadership. I think the most high-profile, I don't think, I know the most high-profile libertarian leader in the United States right now is Rand Paul. He's popular with the Republican base. They listen to him, and he says all the things we like because he believes in all those things. He's a good man with integrity. So maybe it's that. could be other people. You have Thomas Massey out there. By, by the way, Thomas Massey told me that his polling showed that Rand Paul in the state of Kentucky is more popular than Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, or even, and Massey had a hard time admitting this, even uh -huh. Thomas. That, that makes all the sense yeah. in the world. But he's real. Yeah. And pe people get that. They sense that. Um, you know, just who who comes up to, to the top is the question, but uh, it's going to take leadership. It's going to take people like you and I making these arguments and talking about these things and trying to convince people. It's also just going to take capitalizing on moments. I think a lot of people in the Libertarian Party, you know, you have the Mises caucus down. Some, they were complaining, and rightly so, that when the lockdowns were happening, not enough LP people were capitalizing on that. I think those, those criticisms were valid. A lot of Libertarians dropped the ball. Right. On, on lockdown. So, so whether you're in the LP or just a small L libertarian like me or whatever, capitalize on these moments. Like libertarians should have been out front like, no, you don't tell people to lock down. You don't have mandates, whatnot, stuff like that. But I think it's just going to be people drifting in whichever direction they drift and people like us who care about where they drift, sort of using what we can, pushing it in the way we want to, leading where we can and doing those things. So like I've, I've now spent more time talking about big P politics in the last 48 hours and then I probably have wanted to in the last five years um, because because my answer to that is is quite similar because I, th I think we have to focus on on culture and popular culture and and make make liberty cool and accessible and reasonable set of values for people that that are sort of turned off by all this sure. tribalism and hyper partisanship and and censorship and that that um, there's a there's a um, disaffected former Democratic mom that I follow on Twitter. She's got a huge following, and she asked a question the other day, um, basically saying, "Do I really have to choose between um, national conservatism and authoritarian woke progressivism? Isn't right. there something else?" And I'm like, "There is this thing called classical liberalism. Yeah, um, it." It may not have a big seat at the table in politics, but but that's not where we should be anyway. We should be focusing on our families and our communities and and telling these stories to our neighbors. I I think that's where the revolution comes from, and and perhaps the next Rand Paul um, is a product of that bottom up process as opposed to let's go find the big personality and hope that he believes our our set of values. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. It, it really is. Anything that matters is always going to be bottom up. And this, you know, this person that you're following asking those kind of questions, that's that's where you start. Yeah. That's about as finite as you can start. I find that like there's there's a lot of people like that over the last 3 or 4 years and I think they sort of stubbornly resistantly went over to kind of a maga place. But that's not where they're going to finish because it's not a comfortable fit. It's not where they're going to finish. And remember what I said earlier about people, more than intellectual argument, they go where it's sexy and new and fun. Yeah, yeah. And 
if they're in the magazine and that's sort of old hat, maybe more classical liberal. Not not that they're mutually exclusive, but more classically liberal libertarian is where they end up. So you're still playing guitar? I am still playing guitar. I just bought a new guitar. Okay. <laughs> uh, do you have a functioning band right now? I do. I have a silly cover band in Charleston, South Carolina. We're playing on November 18th at the Tin Roof in, in Charleston, if anybody's listening to this is in the area. so. Cool. And uh, where can... Uh, where can people find you? Let's talk about base politics for just a second because sure. this is a cool new project. So base politics, I launched with my friends and colleagues, Brad Palumbo and Hannah Cox in January. And boy, are we getting a lot of traffic. We just launched this thing on our own and uh, just kind of doing our own thing, talking about shaping narratives and putting the messages we want out there. We're covering stories that you won't find in other places from a liberty perspective. Um, it's sort of a right-leaning liberty publication. I'm very proud of what we've done so far, and we're going to keep doing more. Also working with Liberty Tree, which is a product for Brand Paul. We mentioned at the beginning of this, yeah. and we're going to keep growing that. And it's, uh, it's part news. It's also part social media, Twitter, whatnot, that is collected in one place from a liberty perspective, which is sort of the idea. So very proud of what we're doing there as well. Cool. We should not wait so long to do this again. Absolutely. We'd love to see you again soon, Matt. Thanks, sir. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.